and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why do I always say this at the beginning? Can't I just edit it in every single time like a good computer scientist? This is rambling. Anyway, today we have two other panelists on, Justin and Eric. Say hello, Justin and Eric. Hello, Justin. Hello, Eric. <laughs> we have me. Hi. And we have two guests today. We have Andrew Katz. Hello. And Amanda Brock. Who's muted in the Google Doc. Hi there. So, Andrew and Amanda are both calling us from the UK today, where they work on open source. Andrew is a lawyer working for a small boutique consulting firm that does open source things. And Amanda is the head of Open UK, which is, as far as I know, the opens body for UK open source stuff. Super awesome. How do you two know each other and what are you working on right now? We've known each other for, for a long time. There aren't that many uh, open people in the UK. And uh, so there's been any number of events that we've sort of met. So yeah, it's, it's now, well over 10 years. When you say open people, you mean lawyers in open. There's lots yes, of open people yes, in the UK. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Andrew used to work also for me when, I think I can say this, when I was at Canonical, which I joined at the beginning of 2008, I was general counsel there. And Andrew was one of our external counsel, which is how we met. What did you do at Canonical? So I joined pretty early stage, employee 165, and I set up and ran the legal team there. What have you done since? I was there for five years, and then I left, and I worked in a law firm for a couple of years, too early stage, looking at doing nothing but open source, using all my Canonical experience. I've had a few other legal jobs in things like fintech. At one point, I worked out of Amsterdam doing financial services over the phone, but it's quite interesting in emerging markets. So places like Pakistan, Algeria, Bangladesh, a few different countries. That was pretty interesting. But all the time since I've left Canonical, I've been involved with open source projects and organizations. So things like the Open Invention Network. So a lot of experience in legal and open source. Now, I know that you two are both pretty involved in the contact tracing apps, which are coming out right now. Can you speak a bit about the British effort there and how that's going? The Irish gave their app, I think at the weekend, to the Linux Foundation. It was billed as being the most successful track and trace app from the pandemic. And I think I must have had 30 different messages telling me, people wanting to make sure that I know because I've become Mrs. Track and Trace app in the UK. I guess I started lobbying people around it being open source because the UK app was developed by NHSX. And NHSX has an individual who heads up their open source team, Terence Eden, who is one of our board directors at Open UK. So obviously, I've been harassing Terence about that the whole way through. I suppose occasionally I have a little bit of a heads up, but mostly he just reminds me of what's already in the public domain. And I started to follow the apps, realizing that NHSX, of course, have a policy of opening up all their, their outputs. So their code, their principle, their theory, their, their guidance is that their development should be open and should be shared. They use, um, they use MIT yeah, for their code right, yeah. as their standard license. So NHSX gave me an interesting project in that I started with Open UK lobbying the UK government to make sure it was going to be open. On Easter Sunday, our Secretary of State, Matt Hancock, announced that the app was going to be public. He didn't say it would be open source. He said the source code would be public. 
And of course, uh, we wanted to make sure that it was truly going to be open source. So we also were lobbying around that as well. And really pleased to see in May, I think it was the 26th of May, that they open sourced the code on GitHub. What they did, though, was they, they open sourced code. They didn't develop in the open. And that's caused a lot of pushback and a lot of criticism in the UK. They also went out to the Isle of Wight to do testing. And I think that was a big risk. You know, we all know that you test to find out what's wrong with something. But it was done in a very, very press-orientated public way, which meant that if there was any failure, it was going to be a huge public embarrassment. And of course, there was a failure and it was a huge public embarrassment for the government. Whereas we saw a very different approach in Germany. I was surprised the Irish app was described as the most successful because by use, I think it's probably India. And then by being acclaimed, I would have sent Germany. And they have an open source contact track and trace app based on the GAPL API, which was completely developed in the open. You know, they were very, and surprisingly early stage, sharing code in an open way. And when they launched it, I was told by one developer involved that they had over 6,000 bugs that were identified and fixed by the community interaction. And what they had done is originally, yeah, it's amazing, right? So like the UK, they had focused originally on something called a centralized database where the, the transaction happens within the database and there's an assessment done by an AI tool but they're actually assessing the data and making the decision to notify the app user. Whereas the decentralized, you know, happens on the phones. So Germany had gone down the same route and they bowed in mid-April, I think it was about the 20th of April, they pooled their first process of developing an app and they did what we guys would recognize as failed fast. So that they, six weeks later, I think it was seven weeks to the day later, they launched their app. But what I'm hearing now, Andrew, I don't know if you've heard anything, and this is not on the the NHSX inside track, but I'm hearing stories and rumors that we are very close to launching in the UK, that they have been collaborating with other countries since they pulled the the UK app at the beginning of June. Yeah, I haven't heard any more. No, I haven't heard any more. Before we keep going, I want to make sure that uh, you don't get a chance to talk to employee 165 at Canonical every day. So what was the day-to-day for a lawyer just coming into this organization that's sort of shaking things up in the Linux world and just the open source world? I would love to know what you did, mm-hmm. how you built that team and all that stuff, if, if you're comfortable with sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. And that, you know, I, I'm still in touch with some folk from Canonical, some folk who are still at Canonical. We at Open UK, we talk a bit to Catherine Ollahead, who runs the legal team there now. She's the senior lawyer there. And, I, you know, I still have the odd conversation with Mark. It was uh, really, for me, I mean, Andrew, you know this, it was really amazing, actually, because I went in there as a commercial lawyer and I was meant to go on a three-month contract. I was meant to join and work out what the legal team needed and scope it out and then leave. And then I was going to Amazon and I was going to work on what they described as a new electrical retail product, which I'm guessing was the Kindle. Within six weeks, Canonical offered for me to stay and be the general counsel head lawyer. And that was partly because I had worked in devices before. I'd worked for a company that was the biggest retailer of computers in Europe. 
and we had OEM brands. So we had brands where we did the whole manufacture ourselves and I understood how the OEM culture worked. And of course, Canonical then was really focused on the desktop, right? And the fact that they suddenly had a lawyer who accidentally understood how to do desktop deals made me perfect. A lot of people there taught me an awful lot, Andrew included, but it took me six months to really start to get my head around things, right? So things like linking and interactions between code and how that impacted the legals was really difficult, really difficult to understand. But I was very much employed as a a commercial lawyer with a lot of tech experience who would be able to set things up, build it, manage it. And I guess I went native and that wasn't what was expected. I just fell in love with the open source community and wanted to be part of it. So uh, I think that was a bit of a shock to everybody. Mm. Days were really, really long, but really flexible. And the vast majority of what we were doing was in the US, but in Asia disappointingly at that stage, very little in Europe. So I used to rock up quite late and work very late at night to do all the deals with the US. We built a team with a fantastic guy called Andrew Sinclair joining very quickly. And Andrew had been at Black Duck. So he had really, really solid licensing experience. And he amazingly, after all these years, I think he joined in 2008. He's still there. He's a great guy. If you ever want to talk to someone about licensing, Andrew's your man. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah. But it was, it was really exciting, right? Because we're doing new stuff all the time. Were you involved with the Dell deal when Dell started putting Ubuntu on their laptops yeah. for context? I think that was the first thing I worked on. If anyone remembers back in that time, Windows was the only thing that was allowed on Dell laptops. I mean, I think it was a licensing deal, exclusive licensing deal up until, you know, the Justice Department in the United States broke things up and said, hey, you need, there needs to be some competition here. So when Ubuntu got onto Dell, I just remember the industry being like, whoa, this is pretty, this is big. You know, we have one of the largest United States manufacturers of desktops and laptops at the time teaming up with this company to put another operating system that's going to be competing with Microsoft. So how big of a deal was that to your team? How much work went into that? I mean, I can imagine it must have been an undertaking. Really funny. I hadn't ever thought about it to be quite that. Yeah, I suppose looking back on it, it, it was a big deal. We were tiny. I mean, I was the only lawyer for the first sort of six months or so I was there. Andrew came on board and initially focused on all the licensing and technical stuff and moved more into the sales side. But there were three or four of us working on that deal with Dell. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I don't think I've, I've, ever, I've ever asked you before. So, I mean, previously, <laughs> you were... You were You're worrying me. Yes, I know, exactly. No, don't worry. <laughs> so, I mean, previously, you were obviously, you know, working for um, a large commercial organization where you would have been negotiating with suppliers and, you know, you would have been in a pretty strong bargaining position and, you know, you would have had some pretty in-depth conversations about the usual stuff that lawyers talk around about sort of, you know, indemnities and limitations of liability and that sort of thing. Then all of a sudden you find yourself in a position where you're negotiating with organizations who are no doubt asking the same things, but you're providing a whole bunch of stuff under open source software licenses, GPL, for example. It's like, no, no, you can't rewrite the GPL. The GPL is the GPL. First of all, did that feel really weird to you to begin with? And secondly, how did you adapt to dealing with that? Because I know that I found it rather, rather sort of strange process to start to understand that the, the negotiation dynamic changes quite a lot. I started my career in-house in 99. 
I joined a company called Dixon's, which was the company that did the computer retail that I mentioned. I joined them to work on an ISP called FreeServe, which was the first big dot-com IPO in Europe. And there were 12 of us at the time that it went to IPO. I always think I like the name free and things. I like free stuff. So I had gone from these big companies where we were the buyer to a big company where we were the seller. And when you're the seller, you already move to that position of weakness in those negotiations. So I'd already had that experience, which at the time was a massive shock, right? Because I'd only ever experienced being on the buying side. And I think that had prepared me a little bit. But you really had to be able to think on your feet and be convincing. And I think these days I speak a lot and a lot of that comes out of my time at Canonical where I learned to really have to, to explain things to people that were technical in the simplest of terms. And I used to look at it as unteaching the lawyers what they already knew because I'd had to unlearn myself. So you start with copyright and all the things that you think have to be the case. You start with old fashioned contracts that are really structured with you know, big scopes of work that have to be really detailed. And then you move to an agile environment where you're trying to persuade people, just trust me. So you have to find a way of giving them something. And I've been through not just at Canonical, but different processes with open source where I remember doing one big deal and giving somebody our contract to start with and them laughing as if I was stupid because it didn't have all the things you would expect in it. And then we went with theirs. And after months of negotiating, we ended up with something that looked like what I'd started with because I'm not stupid. And what we were doing was making it work for open. And I think in the five years I was there at Canonical, by the time we got to the end of those five years, it was getting easier. And I think the next five years after I left was probably the final shift of companies understanding what open was all about in that space, at least, and being willing to, to take it on board. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that I, I'd had enough at Canonical was that I was a parrot and I kept having the same conversation with people explaining open source and why you couldn't give unlimited liability and again and again and again. It just got wearing. How has that fueled your work with Open UK? Because now obviously you're trying to disseminate a bit more widely beyond Canonical, right? But just in general, and you mentioned that you're working with the British government and so on. How do you feel like that experience has allowed you to go forth and work there? And what are your goals there? Yeah, it really, it created a passion for me. I mean, Mark is an incredibly charismatic and inspirational person. And a lot of the things that he could see in technology and the directions he sent us in weren't immediately apparent to me. And it took me time to catch up with his understanding and his vision. I think he's one of the most visionary people I've ever worked with. So it gave us a sort of head start. You know, I was always running to keep up and learn the things that were going on and the new technologies we were doing. But if you were to look back, and I have a friend who keeps talking about writing a book, a friend, Andrew, who should, not this one, another Andrew who should write this book. But if you look at what Canonical has done over the years, it hasn't always been the company that's created the biggest thing or been the most successful with the output but it is very often the first to develop stuff. And if you watch what they do, you're going to see a real visionary leading a company that's doing cutting edge stuff constantly. Can you tell a bit more about what Open UK does? Open UK, I think, is unique because we have focused not on open source software, but on open technology. So we are an industry organization, an advocacy body. And we sort of rebuilt the organization in January with a, a broad board. I have uh, 12 people on the board to deal with, but they come from software, hardware, and data. And it's intentionally a great spread of people across the UK. So it sort of covers pretty much everywhere. They're diverse and they are as diverse as we could find. 
and never diverse enough, but never mind. And uh, they cover the different disciplines. So we call it the three opens, the open source software, hardware, data, and that makes up open technology. And then we build it on three pillars. And those three pillars are community, legal and policy and learning. And that covers a, a multitude of sins in different ways. Now, I know that you're also getting ramped up to start Open Kids Camp. Is that part of this? And can you talk a bit more about what that is? Absolutely. So we have been really busy on the learning pillar within Open UK, focused mainly on high school kids. We would like to create a high school certification and we would like to build an apprenticeship scheme. And our goal is to have those running by 2022. Had to push it back with COVID. A lot of the engineers that I met at Canonical, I'm going to shout out Jonathan Davis. Poor Jonathan Davis was sat next to the GC when he was 18. And I mean, that's one of the the things that you would never see in another kind of organization, right? You've got an 18 year old sitting next to a woman who's 14 running the legal team. And Jonathan is one of the people who's inspired me in this way in that he doesn't have a degree, but he's a fantastic developer. So one of the things we want to make sure Open UK on the learning side is that we help to promote routes to education for those who may not want to go down a traditional academic route, hence the apprenticeship scheme. So we want to build those and we needed to start to build interaction with schools. We started that in March by setting up a competition. The competition uses something called the Mini Moogla. Uh, That was inspired by the singer Imogen Heap. So UK singer and inventor she is the creator of the My Love, which is something I first saw in 2013, just after I left Canonical, when I did a bit of work with Imogen on a pro bono basis, helping her set that up. So the, the My Love is something you've probably seen Ariana Grande tour with, or Imogen has an amazing Saren TED talk using the glove. And I think she wore it when she hosted the Grammys back in January. The Mini Moo is something that Andrew has actually worked on, Andrew on this call. He helped them open source it earlier this year as part of our process of our competition. And we set up a competition for schools across the UK to use the glove. The real prize for that was supposed to have been bringing kids to London to Red Hat's Innovation Lab. And we built this competition working with GitHub and Red Hat with financial sponsorship from both of them, primarily from Red Hat. And the kids were to learn to code using the glove, do something creative, Winning regional teams would come to London and we would have a final competition that Imogen was going to be there for. Of course, along comes a pandemic and we have to pull it. So what we did instead was we took the funds we had to spend on travel, rolled that into creating a kid's course, and we have now had eight episodes out of 10 shared with those kids. So they're working in a closed platform where they've pretty much been a, a trial group for us running through that course. And I think it's unique. Each episode is animated. They're about 10 minutes long. They have a a voiceover by voiceover artist apart from the first one, which Imogen has narrated for us. And each episode has one minute on open source. So it might explain what community is or how to contribute or what a license is or what copyright is. And in episode one, Imogen Heap spends a minute explaining open source to high school kids. I can't get much more excited about anything than I do about that. Yeah, it's fantastic. It is. It is fantastic. And the, the great it's thing brilliant. about it is that, you know, everything is open. So, so the glove is open. That's under, under an open hardware license. So you can recreate the glove if you want. The software is as well. So it's not inconsistent when you're watching the videos. It's not a question, well, this bit's closed and this bit's open. It's just a nice, straightforward message, really well delivered. I think it's really great. So what we've done with that is we have 
announce the summer camp and the summer camp will be made up of those 10 lessons plus an easing for each lesson. So we currently we have a, a PDF which is used for sort of downloadable instructions. And what we've seen is kids will watch the animation and then they'll use this PDF on their screen while they build and use their glove. Then we've added to the PDF a much more, I suppose, fun, easing, which has things like word quizzes around technology. There's a 14-year-old called Femi. So he's an influencer and he's writing for the kids. We will have different characters, different folk who are well-known across open source. I think Vicky Brasseur is going to be one of those writing a couple of hundred words for the kids about different aspects of open. But we're using all the imagery that comes from the animation, which is quite cartoonish, to create these e-zines. And all of that will be put on our website from the 7th of August. It's Creative Commons, so once it's up there, you can do what you like with it. I think we've got an attribution, actually. It will be available, as long as you can access our website, you will be able to access the e-zine. I think we're using YouTube for kids for the video. There's been a long debate about the best place to put that. And we only announced it on Tuesday. So you've got this kids camp made up of those two components, which I really hope will get kids into coding. With the kids camp, the, the super, super exciting bit for me is that Huawei sponsored us. And we've obviously been talking to them for months. I first met the chap at Huawei in January. And they've sponsored 3,000 of those kits going out to kids across the UK. So looking at something like digital inclusion, you can have up to 3,000 kids getting free kit, but anybody can then do the course. So if you have the money to buy a kit, of course, you can buy one as well. But if you don't have the money, hopefully you'll be able to access one of those three ones. I've been Googling what a Mimu glove is, and I'm like, whoa, this is really cool. (laughs) For those that are interested in listening, the kit can be found through the website of openuk.uk slash openkidscamp. And if you go there, there's a link to buy the kit. It's not expensive at all. Well, it's, I suppose that's relative, but the kit is about 40 pounds. And so, yeah, that's where you can find it. And if you're in the UK, you can obviously, at the same place, there's a link, openuk.uk slash openkidscamp. There's a link to the registration page. I don't know when this will go out. Uh, You may still find their kits available because I think it's going out early next week. We've already had over 500 registrations, but we've got 3,000. So That's really, really cool. I just want to go back to Canonical for one second. I apologize. What went wrong with the Ubuntu phone? Because that was supposed to be the savior of, I mean, maybe not the savior of open source on phones, because I guess you can call Android open source, but what happened? Were you, were you at Canonical at that time? There were so many like disappointed yeah. Ubuntu fans. That I were think like, you no. need to, yeah. Yeah, we could have been Android. Uh, I'm always disappointed that we weren't Android. We worked as hard as, uh, you know, if we believed we were going to be. I think you have to speak to Mark about that one. Can you get him on the show for us? <laughs> <laughs> I can ask. Okay. Hey, it's worth the shot, right? You know, that's what I love about this show is like the reason I met Amanda is because Gil, who was on a previous episode, we're talking about the Yahoo knowledge graph. She commented on the episode and then she's here now. So I love this kind of like, we're all linking together and it's just a really cool, cool thing. A little little meta behind the scenes kind of thing going on right now. You're right. Sorry. One thing leads to another. And that's how Andrew's on. I suggested Andrew come and join me because of the topics you wanted to cover. 
And of course, he is the person who's worked with uh, Maimu on the, the making the Minimu open, yeah, which right. was critical to all of this. How's that experience been, Andrew? It's fantastic. I mean, the great thing about working in open hardware is that you know it's pretty new in comparison with open source software, and people understand how open source software works and the dynamics and and, and the licensing. Open hardware is a much newer area, and in some ways, you know, there are things that we can learn from open source. So there are many fewer licenses. You know, as you know, there are hundreds of open source software licenses. There are many, many fewer open hardware licenses, so we don't have this license proliferation problem. And there are some big challenges as well in terms of the way that it works from a legal perspective. A lot of people are defaulting to a a permissive license because it's a lot more straightforward, and and that's what we're going for the mini-move glove, and that's fine. But then there are people who want some sort of copied left reciprocity as well, and that's sort of proven to be something that's more complex. And, you know, uh, how do we get that to work? So as an intellectual challenge, it's been really interesting. It's been really interesting being in a position where you're able to influence something from very early stages and see things that are opening up and see that people are starting to understand the benefits of, of open hardware. So I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've found it a really, really interesting experience. What examples are there out there of successful open hardware projects other than what you're working on? Well, I mean, there's some probably the best known ones are things like RepRap and, and Arduino. But I think where I find a lot of the most interesting activity at the moment is in open silicon. I mean, RISC-V in particular, you know, with the specification that they've come up for, with for the instruction set architecture. So that's been implemented in a number of cores. And those cores are now available under a number of different open source licenses, BSD being one of the most prevalent. And so you've got organizations like Western Digital, you've got organizations like Sci-Fi that have been set up especially to commercialize the RISC-V architecture. And so there's a lot of real interest, there's a lot of financial activity going on. I mean, Sci-Fi has seen some you know, very significant investment. And I'm in the middle of a study at the moment for the European Commission. So we're doing a study on open source software and hardware. And it's, it's very interesting that they specifically mentioned open source hardware. I don't think that there has been a study of this scope on that specifically intended to cover open source hardware before. So I've been doing a lot of research in the middle of doing a lot of research on that at the moment. And at the moment, I say the most interesting area is in, the terms of, is in terms of open silicon. Can you explain a little bit more what open silicon is for the audience and for me? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, silicon... Chips are, they tend to be designed using a hardware description language. And a hardware description language is something that looks very much like a, a, a computer programming language. And in fact, the, there are projects around that allow you to write code in Python, for example, and then have that um, translated into something like Verilog, which is the, the sort of language that people use when they're, they're writing chip designs. So there's a great deal of similarity between programming software and programming hardware description languages. And what you end up with, basically, is something that describes a whole bunch of components, a whole bunch of logic gates. I mean, ultimately, a silicon chip is, you know, it's a little black box with pins in it, and you bung inputs in one side and outputs come out the other side. And there's a really interesting device that many people have heard of called an FPGA, which stands for Field Programmable Gate Array. And that is you know, the ultimate multipurpose silicon chip. And what you can do with that is you can put in a custom 
array of gates, which can basically make it do anything. You can turn it into a memory chip, you can turn it into a microprocessor, you can turn it into a UART, SIO, you know, anything that you can think of, you can program to do this. And they're ludicrously inexpensive, these things. I mean, whether, whether you believe this or not, I had, I had a look on them, Alibaba the other day, and you can buy admittedly fairly basic ones from as cheap as a, as a cent in volume. But, you know, normally you would be paying sort of retail sort of four or five dollars, something like that. So this is a chip that you can program to do just about anything. And the open silicon is, this is where it maps very closely onto open source software. You have people who are designing microprocessor cores, which are able to be loaded into these chips, and then they can connect them to a whole bunch of other technology as well. So, you know, you can have interfaces to networking, USB, Wi-Fi. There's some really interesting stuff going on in terms of software-defined radio. So you can have radios that are defined completely in silicon. And there's a, a lot of people who are working very heavily on these technologies, and you can implement them by putting them inside FPGAs. But clearly, microprocessor chips themselves, they're not generally FPGAs. They are what are known as ASICs, application-specific integrated circuit. So these are the circuits that are just made at the outset to do one job. And it's very expensive to set up a factory to create ASICs. But once you've actually got the production line running, each individual unit is very, very inexpensive. And at the moment, most of the interest seems to be, for example, you have ARM, which is a proprietary software company. They involve very heavily in open source, but their chip designs are all proprietary. And people are buying those chip designs and they're putting them in you know, all sorts of places, phones. I mean, Apple uses a, a lot of ARM technology. And in fact, they're moving their um, desktop computing over to ARM technology in the future. So you know, they're going to be pretty worried about open silicon if organizations like Sci-5 are able to compete with them by taking open source designs. And then you get the open source methodologies happening. You get, uh, there, if you look on places like um, LibraCores, and I'll link in for that, you'll see that uh, there are many core designs on there that people are able to take, debug, improve, stick together. I mean, you can have multiple cores on, on one chip. So all of the things that you would expect to be able to do with open source software, you can do with open silicon as well. So it's a really, really exciting and interesting area. What challenges are you seeing with this? So as a software developer, right, and as a group that we are here, we constantly think about open source licensing and what challenges are you facing aside from it being new? Like, do you feel that there is a certain amount of pressure or necessity uh, for you to push and determine these different licenses that should exist? And also, I'd love to hear a little bit more what the outcome of your research is. You say you're doing a lot of research, but I'd mm -hmm. like to know, like, what's the goal of this research? Right. Okay. Well, we'll start with the goal of the research first. It's intended to really push policy in the European Commission is the idea for the next 10 years. You know, the, the European Commission is obviously regards open source software and open source hardware as being important. Um, so we're looking at what policy aspects, potential legislation can be put in place that's going to create a more competitive, more innovative environment uh, for developing those. So the sort of things that we're looking at there, I mean, there's relatively boring ones like procurement policies, you know, should public sector bodies all, always make sure that they are at the very least, examining open source alternatives. The more interesting ones, as far as, you know, if you look at the intellectual property laws, is there anything we can do to tweak copyright law, patent law, that's going to make it easier for these uh, technologies to thrive, but at the same time provide, you know, a, a level playing field for other technologies as well. 
And the trouble with intellectual property laws is because they tend to be harmonized to a large extent throughout the world because of international treaties. To a degree, there's a limited scope for being able to change them. So we're going to have to work within those parameters as well. But the most interesting part of the research has been uh, talking to people you know, who are well understood, who are very prominent in this area and you know, understanding their different viewpoints. We're starting an interview program at the moment. So we've got about uh, 20 interviews lined up during the course of the next month. But one of the great things has been, because it's quite a prominent study, it's been very easy to find you know, all of the appropriate people to talk to. So people like Chris Rosanovich from Sci5, people from projects like um, RepRap, you know, they're all very happy to talk to us. One of the things that's emerged so far is that it does seem to be the case that the most successful open hardware projects in terms of the amount of penetration and the amount of financial interest investment coming in are the ones that are most similar to open source software. So what I'm working on at the moment is this thing which has got the dreadful name of hardwareness. And so what I've developed a scale of software to hardware. So software is obviously completely at the software end of the scale. Something like a dump truck would be right at the hardware end of the scale. Then you have things like the open silicon that I was talking about is pretty close to the software end of the scale because a lot of the processes that you undertake to develop one of these things, very similar to the processes that you would undertake to develop software. So as a result, you can take advantage of all of the things that have made open source software so successful. So everything happens digitally on your computer. Computers are relatively inexpensive. If you've got internet connectivity, that means that you know, you've got repositories like GitHub and GitLab where you can, you can store the products. It's very easy for people to make changes, um, suggest changes, do pull requests. You know, all of the things that you would expect to do in software, you can do in this sort of hardware as well. And, and also prototyping is very significant. So you can do all of the prototyping for a silicon chip design pretty much all entirely within a computer. So you don't have to go into the physical domain at all. Everything happens in the, in the digital domain. And um, if you then move on to something like a circuit board, then there's a lot of software available that will let you do you know, a lot of the testing and design within the digital domain. But there comes a point, obviously, at which you then have to translate that into the hardware domain. And that's really easy to do because there are many services these days where you can get all the relevant files, send them off to one of these services electronically, obviously. And then within a couple of days and for very few dollars, um, you will get back in the post, you know, this circuit board that you can then stick your components on. So you've got a very quick cycle and it's the speed of the development cycle that is key, I think, to, to open source software. So and then you've got something like a RepRap, which is a 3D printer that's capable of printing a lot of its own components. But that requires some physical assembly. So that's quite heavily in the, in, in the software area because a lot of the design work can be done in the digital domain. Uh, but it's also got very heavy hardware elements as well. So that's further down towards the hardware end of the scale. And then right down at the end, you know, you've got the dump truck. If you've got an open source dump truck, then you, know, you need a huge factory to build it and test it. You can't really do a huge amount of testing in the digital domain. I mean, you can obviously simulate some of it. But at the end of the day, you've got to build this thing and it, it's going to cost you, you know, millions of dollars to put a prototype together. So my hunch, and this is something that we want to test during the course of the study, is that things that are more like software, more amenable to open source software. So we've developed this hardware scale and we're going to be testing that by going out to a lot of experts in the domain and, and saying, you know, name your project and can you say where it is on this scale? And then by combining that with some other metrics, we can figure out whether that hunch is, is actually something that makes sense or not. 
So I'm amazed by the level of hardware hacking that seems to go on in Britain because it's, it's rep rep is a British thing. It is, yeah. Uh, Mimu is British. Raspberry Pi is British. It just seems like you're all much further along than we are on this side of the pond. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? I'm just curious. Quite a lot of it comes out of academia. I mean, I think it's, it's basically because universities are not typically very well funded. So there's an awful lot of activity going on in universities to try to make equipment, you know, specifically for doing experiments you know, at lower cost. And um, that in itself becomes a, a fun thing to do. And there's a really thriving community between the universities um, at the moment amongst people trying to do this. And I've been to a number of conferences and it's really, really interesting and really impressive. I think there's also a history of innovation and, and let's try it. And, and I think this is something that the Kids Project is, hopefully we're going to kickstart that again. And, uh, you know, there have been computers like the, you know, Sinclair ZX80, ZX81 Sinclair Spectrum, which are credited with having provided a generation of programmers in the UK that are responsible for the UK's very successful games industry, for example. And, you know, and I, and I can see that providing the same environment, letting kids try this stuff, letting, letting them understand that, you know, this is a great way to design things, I, I think is, is also going to be extremely beneficial in the same way. You didn't ask me, but I'm going to jump in if I can on that topic of the UK there. And um, when people first spoke to me about getting involved in Open UK, I said no, because I wasn't interested in stuff focused on just one country. And frankly, I'm Scottish. But with Brexit, it made me sort of focus a bit more on what was happening. And we were seeing this project that Andrew's been doing all the research for is going to create a, a paper for the commission. And we were seeing the European Commission really, really engage. And whether they'll get it right is another thing, but they're definitely moving towards open in all the European institutions. The Pirate Party pushed through a requirement, I don't know if it's a regulation, to the, through the European Parliament during lockdown, but we were all on lockdown, which requires European institutions to use open source software. And if they don't, they have to explain why, but they also have to have it audited annually, right? So there's teeth behind it. We've had that kind of provision in the UK for 10 years, but they are actually making it happen. So for me, for Open UK, I wanted to make sure that the UK was going to keep up with what the commission was doing from a policy perspective, but also comments like there, there aren't many people in the UK who do open. Actually, there's tons of us and I meet them at conferences and I've been lucky to go to the conferences for lots of different projects because I'm not a developer working on a particular project. And I often put people together because I've met them in different places and they don't know each other. But I'm as guilty as the rest. I met a, a lady from Microsoft who lives 150 yards from me and who I had been working with pre-pandemic. We now walk her dog together and she buys pet food for me for my little kitten. She has lived there all this time and has been my neighbor. And I had no idea, even if I was working with her, you know, it's just what happens. So I think there's this natural focus for all of us with Brexit in the UK, perhaps more so with travel restrictions and the pandemic for everybody, but there's no intention to replace all of our international collaborations and working together. It's just to also additionally bring us together geographically, I think. And there is a huge, huge population in the UK doing open who just don't know each other. Well, for those of our listeners who are from the UK and or related areas in Europe, where can we find you? Where can we read about the work that's going on? 
the website has some on it. We need to put more on there. The Twitter account has become our default social media. I'm going to say our default social media for grown-ups. We've just launched Snapchat, Facebook, and Instagram, which will be focused at kids, you know, all about open for kids. So you'll TikTok. find us on those. But that was a difficult one. So no, we haven't, <laughs> but we would have if it had been a month earlier, to be quite honest. So jury's still slightly out in that one. We'll leave it for now, I think. So you can find us at openuk underscore UK or openuk.uk and we're pretty accessible. So people, there's also a LinkedIn group. Strangely, what I'm finding is younger developers are joining the LinkedIn group, which is kind of weird. It's not how I would have expected it to be. But in a way for them, that may be a good place to connect to their peers and maybe recruiters and things as well. We'll see them in this sort of space of open people with experience and open but Twitter at OpenUK underscore UK is definitely where you'll find us. Amanda, tell me so, about your book. So the book is called Free and Open Source Software Law, Policy and Practice. It's the second edition of a book published by Open University Press, which was pretty much a European reach in its first edition, which came out about seven or eight years ago. And this time what we've done is get 20 to 30, I think there's 25 people involved, different authors who are all over the globe much more of a US and Asian focus than we had before. And it covers pretty much everything that you would want to know about open source from things like the community building and governance, which is being done by Steve Wally and Ross Gardler at Microsoft, through to the sort of latest areas like open hardware by Andrew Katz, who's also on the program today, and blockchain by Mark Radcliffe. The great thing about the book, though, is that the Veach Foundation have very generously funded it being open access. And that really matters. That's really important to me. I'm very proud of that. So we will be able to share the content free to everybody. And for me, my content, actually, if, if you're interested in what I was saying about Canonical and Ubuntu earlier, my chapter is about commercial models and open source. And I've spent quite a lot of time getting up to speed on what I call the open core wars of 2017 to 2020. So hopefully that'll make good reading. Thank you so much for sharing. It's been fascinating listening. Unfortunately, we do have to wrap up, but we have a bit of time left for Spotlight, if you don't mind. This is the section where we talk about projects that have helped us out or things that we think need some more light shed on them. Justin, who do you want to shed the spotlight on today? I've been working with the fine folks at SIA.tech, S-I-A.tech. And they're an open source decentralized cloud storage platform by uh, Nebulous Labs. And they're throwing a hackathon. So gitcoin.co slash hackathon to take that look to get in on that. So yeah, thanks. Excellent. Eric? Yeah, I had a really great experience yesterday. And for the listeners who've been listening for a while, CodeFund was the company that a handful of us ran. And unfortunately, that company shut down at the end of last month. Luckily, we were able to continue on with the podcast network. And the reason that you're able to listen to this podcast network right now is, is heavily due to the contributions of two amazing, amazing people, Paul and Deanne Barr. Both of them, I found out, we had a, I had a call with them yesterday, and these people are not only incredible editors and producers and able to take this raw content that we provide them and turn it into a really high-quality and product, but also they are just genuinely good people. And so it's unrelated to open source completely, but I do want to point out that Peachtree Sound, who is our 
editor of choice, and they're actually now partners with Rebase, which is this podcast network. They're outstanding people. And I just wanted to give them credit publicly within one of these podcasts because they definitely deserve it. So hi, Paul. Hi, Deanne. We love you guys. Thank you for all that you do. I love you too. Hi, Paul. All right. Thank you. They are amazing. I want to point out Strange Parts, strangeparts.com. This is a friend of mine. We founded the Users My Mom together. I've actually probably spent more time talking to his mom, Pam, than I have him. But Scotty Allen's a great dude who hacked his own circuit boards to add an iPhone jack back to the iPhone 7. This guy who built his own iPhone in China. His uh, YouTube is fantastic. It has like a million subscribers on it. And it's just super fun to watch someone with the enthusiasm of a kid and the technical skills of a super talented Silicon Valley engineer have a hack at things. So he kept coming up my head during this podcast, strangeparts.com. Andrew Katz, what do you got for us? Well, I've been talking a lot about open hardware. So you know, there's no better place to start than the open hardware repository, which is ohwr.org. And that's run by CERN. And there's all sorts of fun stuff on there. But there's also the licenses themselves. So if you really, really want to get bored and uh, you need to look at Deb's legal drafting, I mean, I think it's lovely, but uh, you know, I'm a bit too close to it. Then, yeah, go and have a look at ohwr.org. Sounds max. Thank you so much. <laughs> and last but greatest, Amanda, what do you have for us? I'm going to do two very quick ones. Open RAM, which is going to be the future of 5G in the UK, and we all need to really engage with around the open communities. And LibreOffice, which is looking like it might need some help. Michael Meeks at Collabra has been writing about that and uh, the state of the ecosystem. And it's something that anybody who's still in the legal or governance space will need to do their documents with. So, yeah, that's my second choice. Thank you so much. Any final words of note? Anything we missed? Amanda, one of the things that you talked about earlier, and it's something that's been on top of mind for me, is... The whole COVID response, the knowledge that's being generated within all of these different countries, it it seems unrealistic to me that this research would not be made completely open source because we're all facing the same issue. We all want the same outcome. So I guess my question for the both of you is why do you think perhaps that these countries are not wanting to open source their research and their findings? in order to help us reach our goal of everybody can go back to school, everybody can go back to work Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. And that ties in with what you're talking about in your experience where, you know, Germany, if you can elaborate on that just a tiny bit, I would love to hear what your thoughts are. So there are two projects that we're working on with Open UK that I think are really relevant to this. One will launch in September. It was supposed to have started in March in a slightly different form and was pushed back with the pandemic. We are working with the engineering firm Arup, A-R-U-P, Arup, who are architects and structural engineers and who work on the future cities kind of projects. And they're going to sponsor Open UK in an open data work stream that we're kicking off in September. That will be all about opening up pandemic data and how we can open it up, not just healthcare data, things like you know travel, economic data and how we can open it for the benefit of everybody in the future and build things that are going to help society. And then the second thing is a project we kicked off, and it's very much an open project, right? So we haven't, despite the fact there's a few lawyers involved, we haven't put a lot of governance around it. And that's Open Tech Response, which is at Response Open on Twitter or opentechresponse.com. 
Now that was set up very loosely as Slack and Rocket channels. And the goal there was to be able to put people in projects in response to the pandemic in touch with each other. You know, sometimes it's really quiet. Other times we're still having a bit of comms going on in it. But I fully expect it to get much busier if there's a second wave. But we also have created a tool sitting behind it, which is a matchmaking tool. And that tool will match people who want to volunteer with projects that need help. And we've purposely set all of this up so it's not COVID specific. So when you go on to the matchmaking tool as a Dropbox, I hate saying this, but it's like, which disaster do you want to respond to? You know, which do you want to volunteer for COVID or thankfully it's blank. But that's there because what we saw, and Andrew, I know, was involved in this too, is that the folk in open are the kind of people who want to make the world a better place and want to help. So it is not surprising that all over the globe, projects were doing the same things, right? They were building ventilators, all of which could be in Andrew's CERN Open Hardware License. It's a great article that he wrote on that specific topic at Jolt's. But what, what you see is everybody doing the same thing because they're rushing to get it done and having this a way to shout out to each other and having this way to find volunteers when there is a panic, I hope will make a difference. I've actually got a, a sort of call on some um, open hardware stuff relating to COVID just after this. And one of the topics that comes up very, very frequently is that, yeah, okay, we understand the way that open hardware licensing works. But the problem is that, you know, potentially we're providing designs for medical devices and the regulation is really complex. And, and, and how do we deal with that? And, you know, my goal in licensing is just to try to make all of that stuff go away to the extent that I, that I can. I mean, you know, I want to make it as easy as possible for people working in open technologies just to get on with the stuff that A, they want to do and B, that we want them to get on with, which is designing things, making things, et cetera, et cetera. And this is a really thorny one, because obviously you can't just remove regulation. You can't have you know, anyone producing medical devices. So they do have to go through some sort of process. But you've got to make sure that the certification process happens at an appropriate stage so that it's possible for people to still develop and share in a collaborative fashion. And this is a thorny one. And it's certainly one of the things that has given us an opportunity to think about you know, during this European Commission study that we're doing is to look quite closely one of the policy recommendations will be something along the line of how to streamline this process so that we can try and make open technologies work better when there's a disaster. But, you know, it's quite difficult to do that in a way that doesn't make it easy for, you know, the dodgy charlatans to start producing dangerous equipment. And that's, a, that's quite a tricky, tricky thing to, to work through. Thank you so much, Eric, for asking that question. Thank you, Amanda and Andrew for answering so eloquently. Open tech response is awesome. I really love that effort. And thank you so much for being on this call. Good luck. Take care. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all. It's been fantastic. Thank you for having us. Bye.